The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. We begin with the big story of the day. Fed Chair Jay Powell wrapping up his semiannual testimony before the Senate Banking Committee just a short while ago, and we have big market moves. He said the Fed will stay the course until the job is done, and that could include higher interest rates than previously anticipated and a quicker pace of hikes as well. You see the Dow down 400 points on those remarks. Uh, S&P's down 1%. 4,007 is the level there, and the Nasdaq down about half a percent. Interesting to see the Nasdaq out performing the 10-year yield heading back towards 4% now. The two-year yield at almost 5%. Take a look at the screen behind me for the 10-year, although now we're seeing it kind of calm down a little bit. Actually, I'm seeing some trader commentary. Can that, can that help equities out as the Dow is now down more than 400? Anyway, you see the 10s. Compare that with the 2s. We're hitting fresh lows for the 210 yield curve inversion. It's almost exactly a point right now. This is the most extreme we've seen since September of 1981. Let's get to Bill Lee. He's chief economist at the Milken Institute. He's here to react. But before that, first, let's get to CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman for all the headlines. Testy exchange there with uh, Senator Warren, Steve, and what felt like a, a man who kind of wanted to deliver some new information to the market, and it seems to be taking it that way. Yes, he did, Kelly. And as I'll say in a second, he also wanted to deliver, to not deliver certain information. I'll get to that in a second. But let me go over, you really hit it, Kelly, the three bullet points that really matter. Uh, How fast? Well, faster than maybe you thought before. How high? Well, maybe higher than we previously thought. Uh, Ultimate level of rates likely to be higher. Uh, and, and, And how long? Well, restricted policy will be in place for some time. So those are the three things combined that create that whole hawkish outlook. And you can take a look here, what's happened to the chance of a 50 base point hike in March. It's gone up that probability. It was 23 percent before uh, he spoke. Uh, And now, just so you know how things are moving, Kelly, when we made this chart a few minutes ago, it was 54 percent. Now it's 58 percent. So that's becoming the odds on uh, uh, probability. And now take a look at all of that combined, how that affects the Fed rate outlook a new high for the terminal rate at 563 and a new high for the year-end rate, which is 546 or so uh, on that. And what he didn't say, Kelly, was this word of disinflation. He Mm. used that term 15 times at the December press conference, nine times didn't call it a, a dovish or a neutral way. He used it just once in this hearing. He was there, by the way, a lot longer in this hearing than he spoke at the press conference. And the only time he used it was in context of him saying that um, he doesn't see it in the core services sector, ex-housing. Bottom line on that, Kelly, is he gave the doves nothing to trade on. Oh, sure. I think he said something to the effect of the... He didn't use that word, but the, the process has reversed somewhat. Maybe sort of like progress on inflation yes, reversed somewhat right. or, or language like that. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. No, he did, he did say that, that he kind of took the Governor Waller's speech, said how 
important the January data was, not only because it was higher than expected, uh, more economic activity, as well as higher inflation, but it's the revisions that really changed the past and made that idea of the step down to the 25 basis points something that I think they're reconsidering now. Bill, are you in the 50 camp next meeting now? I think the markets have really underestimated how much is needed. Uh, what we're missing right now is some guidance that says how much is going to be enough. Because Powell's clearly said where we are, where we were telling you we're going is not enough. And I think the one thing that uh, Steve and other uh, people haven't mentioned is the guidance that the Federal Reserve report itself gave us. It said that given the kind of policy rules that people have been using to assess different types of policies, we need rates somewhere on the order of six and a half, seven percent to get enough of a, of a slowdown in the economy to get us back to 2% inflation. Those numbers are not even on the table right now. And I think the message is yet to come. And we might actually see if the disinflation story disappears on us and the economy actually is hotter than we thought, we may be seeing 6 and 7% numbers uh, between now and the, the middle of the year. Yeah, we were, I, Steve and I both thought we were just uh, talking to Professor Taylor about this not, not a couple of days ago. I think he was at 6%, Bill. But um, either way, it seems, let's talk about kind of the, the yield curve inversion. The 10-year yield at uh, 4% now, I have to like think every time I say these numbers because we've been whipsawing around so much. So you're saying we're going to 6 maybe 7% on the Fed funds rate. The 10-year no. is now at 4% and not going back to the highs we saw in the fall. Have we started the process whereby the higher the Fed funds probability goes, the lower the 10-year yield might go because it's so concerned about where that growth trajectory is taking us? One of the things to keep in mind is that the Fed is not focused on the inverted yield curve. They're focused on what it really means for the economy. If we have a slowdown in inflation, people really adapt their expectations, adapt their behavior, and we get the kind of soft landing they're hoping for, we have lower 10-year rates. But if we have a crash and a hard landing, we also get the, the lower 10-year rates. The, 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 the Fed itself, of course, prefers that soft landing, and they're hoping that through this jawboning and early jawboning, they're going to be able to get people to change their behavior early enough so that we avoid that hard landing. But the, 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 the inversion of the yield curve gives us two scenarios, and, and which scenario is going to be depends upon how credible the Fed statements are and how much Wall Street takes it to heart. Probably one of the worst pieces of news, Steve, this week was the unit labor costs and productivity report, or maybe it was last week. But when it shows that for the quarter, um, unit labor costs, I think we're still six and a half percent. Productivity is now falling. So it's now showing evidence of labor hoarding, you know, that firms are just reluctant to let people go, which means inflation is higher uh, for now than it otherwise would have been. And that we could end up seeing more hikes and then a deeper downturn resulting in the next, I don't know what the time frame is now, 6, 12, 18 months. I mean, this is going to be a long period of waiting, waiting and waiting for uh, these conditions to fully set in. Kelly, I've given up a lot of my optimism here, but but one thing I've not quite given up just yet is my optimism on productivity, um, and and I can we can go through that. And I think you and I probably should do a segment on this down the road. But right now, there's a lot of volatility in the productivity numbers because we had this surge of productivity at the beginning of the pandemic when some of the lower wage and lower productivity workers uh, were let go, and now they've come back. So I'm not quite ready yet to give up the ghost. I think we've maybe had some improvements in productivity from different business processes that have come out of COVID. So I'm a little bit, I remain optimistic on that front. I don't think we're quite giving that up. What does concern me though, is the issue 
of whether or not we have enough workers in the workforce. And that was discussed. And, and I think that we are still several million short of where we should be relative to having enough workers to do the job. And, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting, Bill. He is getting asked now more yeah. about pockets of the economy where we have problems. We'll talk about this later. But commercial real estate was one of them. Um, and just this idea of, you know, when Warren Pressman and, and he tried to say, you know, we don't think we have to have a worsening labor market to bring inflation down. Yeah. But I'm not sure that's true because it's now unit labor costs that are driving inflation higher. This is not about the supply chain anymore. Um, this is directly a, a, an issue of the tightness there. It seems unavoidable. Well, Kelly, you have to watch out that the unit labor cost is an aggregate number. There are some companies that are really doing quite well in, keep, in keeping their costs down and changing their, their business models and, and using technology to make workers more productive. Other parts of the economy have lagged behind on that. And so you had this big spike in um, unit labor costs, in part because we have seen the flip side of the huge uh, uh, downward drop in, in uh, unit labor costs at the beginning of the, uh, of the, of the recovery. But one thing that you have to keep in mind is that the disinflationary forces have are still in place that cut that going all the way back to the last 10 years because technology and the changes in globalization are changing the way business models are going about doing their their their, their business. Sure. And I think what, going forward, we're going to see that we will have uh, better profits and better uh, uh, results if we can keep up the pace of productivity growth. And yeah. I think Steve is absolutely right. Productivity is really the heart of what the future is gonna hold for inflation. And here comes AI. OpenAI just announced tools to use with Slack to get you caught up on, I mean, that alone could save the whole economy. I mean, if we don't have to spend our time catching up on all these different group chats, uh, it's all gonna be fine. Guys, we'll leave it there. Bill Lee, Steve Leesman, thank you very, very much uh, as we react to stocks at session lows, by the way. Dow's down 470 points, even as the 10-year yield has improved a little bit. By that, I mean dropping. Uh, the three-year note just went up for auction as well. Maybe that has something to do with it. Rick Santelli, what's happening out in, uh, at the CME? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm pretty sure the three-year note uh, auction did not help push equities lower. If anything, it should probably uh, stem the slide to some extent. The three-year note auction was pretty good. I gave it a B plus, but it didn't have the type of horsepower to move equities. But what it does do is it gives us good information that investors are still willing to step up to the plate on a short maturity. But let's all keep this in perspective. There was quite a big concession today as rates dropped right after Mr. Uh, Powell was done speaking. So B plus, 40 billion, three-year notes, the yield at the auction, 4.635, exactly where the one issued price. So pricing, pricing was pretty good. We put that aside. Out of the four categories left, Two of them were stellar, hence the B-plus, boy-plus grade. Uh, 2.73 bid to cover was the second best bid to cover going back to mid-2018. And dealers, you know, the buffet table after investors got done uh, gorging themselves on three-year notes, there wasn't that many left. Dealers only took 16.8%. I have a 20-year database. I don't see a smaller number there, so very aggressive on the investor side. Uh, tomorrow, of course, we have 10s followed by 30s. Uh, Mr. Powell's testimony didn't, uh, and, and question answer didn't seem to have huge impacts on the market outside of what you mentioned, Kelly. And that, of course, is uh, retesting levels we haven't seen in over four decades in twos to tens as that two-year note really escalated early this morning with respect to dropping price and rising yield. I see 103 minus 103 basis wow. points is the most uh, inverted that trade has been today and the session is not over yet.
Wow. Rick, thank you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli with the action out there. Now let's get back to markets at session lows across the board. And what should investors do now? Let's bring in Michael Cugino, president of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, and Courtney Garcia, senior wealth advisor at Payne Capital Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Courtney, I'm reminded. So Nancy Tangler had a piece this week, and it's interesting to see this is where investors' minds are going, where they say, you know what? And this was some fun strat data as well. Maybe the Volcker years weren't that bad for the stock market. You know, as Rick says, the inversion is that the worst since 1981. Actually, equities did okay after Volcker threw us into a double-dip recession. I would just appreciate your response to what you think is playing out here post-Powell. Yeah, and I think what's interesting to see is we do continue to have an inverted yield curve. And even today, we saw the two-year Treasury moved a lot more than the 10-year Treasury. What that means is markets are really pricing in that longer-term inflation is still coming down. The big question is how soon it's coming down and how quickly are they going to raise interest rates and for how long. Um, but really, this is going to be more of a short-term problem. Markets still see this as longer term. And the other thing you want to look at, because again, it's the bond markets that you really want to look at when it comes to inflation, the credit spread. So when you look at the the yield that a corporate bond is paying versus a treasury bond, normally investors demand a higher yield for what they consider a riskier asset. Right now, there's not a huge difference between a corporate yield and a treasury, meaning they don't deem a recession a huge risk right now. So we see inflation still coming down over the long run. Not a, re a recession is not necessarily being priced in. And that hasn't necessarily changed today. Um, but I think the bigger thing is going to be the data points that come out on Friday. We get the jobs report. We get the CPI report coming out next week. I think ultimately the Fed is going to be data dependent. And we need to see what happens with those before we know where they're going to go going forward. Sure. Michael Cugino, what jumped out to you? And, and what do you make of the action today in response to Powell's comments? Honestly, uh, not, I don't think there was anything new here. Um, in our view, the terminal rate was always going to be between 5 and 6%. I don't think that really changed, despite the hawkish talk. Um, and I don't see a real strong risk of a you know, soft landing, shallow recession. Uh, there's not much difference between those. But uh, the real risk would be a deep and long recession. And with the employment picture so strong, I just don't see that happening. Now, granted, that could be a lagging indicator and if employment falls quickly, you know, all bets are off the table. But until you have that happen, people are working, they're spending, it's propping up the economy. It's allowing companies to push through some pricing power. It's allowing businesses to plan. Uh, it allows inventory to keep growing and being sold. So, I, you know, the, the question is, at what rate does the economy not grow uh, with respect to interest rates? And we don't really know yet, that yet. Going back to the Volcker comment, you know, we saw in the 1980s that we had still generally high interest rates because they were coming down from the real high levels of the early 80s. Right. And we still had a good decade of economic growth. So the U.S. economy in the past has demonstrated that it can grow with higher rates for longer. But will that be true this time around? Because we're obviously not talking the 1980s. And so that is a question. Yeah. And, uh, and I think inflation, you know, we, we expected it to come down a little bit and then stabilize uh, given the offsets of interest rates working their way, their interest rate volatility working their way through the, the economy, you know, the big year last year. But that would be offset by stimulus from the Inflation Reduction Act and the budget bill that maybe also hasn't worked its way through the economy yet. So there's a push-pull scenario there on how quickly inflation could fall further from that, say, 4 to 6 Range. You know, we both like energy. Uh, Courtney, just quick comment on that, because oil is dropping today as well in response. And it's still down year to date, despite the whole hopes of China's reopening. Now, when we talked to Pioneer yesterday, they said 
they can make money at 40 a barrel. (laughs) Yesterday we were still at 80. So um, they might feel like they're kind of sitting pretty in this environment. Just curious if you would say to investors they should stick with it. I I do think you should stick with it. And I think a lot of people have put this on the sidelines because it outperformed to such a high magnitude last year that people are saying, ah, it can't happen again. Um, But I think the fundamentals still look good. And you bring up such a good point is it's not just Pioneer. Many of these energy companies' break-even levels are a lot lower than oil prices are now. And there's still this huge supply and demand constraint that has not been resolved. And as China continues to reopen, that only makes that worse. And the average dividend on your energy company is about 4%, which is actually one of your best yielding um, yields in the industry in the meantime. So even as you're waiting for some of these price increases, um, it's in the meantime paying a great dividend. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Courtney Garcia, Michael Cagino, Dow's down 461. Mm -hmm. Coming up, we have the CEO of ConocoPhillips from Sierra Week with his take on that continued weakness in crude. His company is also underperforming the oil and gas exploration ETF, the XOP, to start the year. We'll get his latest on the largest and maybe most controversial pending oil development in the country as well. Looking forward to that. But first, goodbye, Tina. Hello, Tierra. Remember when there is no alternative was all the rage for stock investors last decade? Well, times are very different, and we're looking at where you can get the juiciest yields nowadays. That's next. As we head to break, here's a look at the broad landscape where the Dow is the worst performer, down 1.4% today. The Nasdaq about half that. The Russell, same story as the 10 years back at 395. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Thanks to the massive Fed rate hikes, there suddenly are a lot of alternatives to putting your money in stocks. It's got strategists coming up with all sorts of new acronyms as a result. Goldman calls it Terra. There are reasonable alternatives. Deutsche says Tapas. There are plenty of alternatives. Insight Investment says Tierra. There is a realistic alternative. One of those possible alternatives, no matter what you call it, are muni bonds. The tax-free space saw heavy selling in February, but is it time to get back in? Let's ask Jamie Iceland, head of municipal fixed income at Newberger Berman. Our own Dominic Chu is here as well for wonky but wonderful. Uh, We love it. We love it. Speaking of, I mean, the the short end, the bills today are up like 18 basis points. People who bought a couple weeks ago are probably like, what am I doing? I need to get back in. Well, it's not just that, too. The dynamic that you're seeing in treasuries is having a knock-on effect. I mean, the, the, the municipal side, from a bigger picture macro perspective has some more fundamental drivers of the trade other than just what's happening with interest rates. But still, if you look at the taxable equivalent yields that you can get 
in certain parts of the high yield and right. then investment grade corporate market and certainly in treasuries versus what you're seeing in municipal projects, it does provide some interesting opportunities so, right now. So, Jamie, we turn to you on that note. And why is it that people were pulling money out of this space? So flows have been a bit of a headwind for a while now, haven't they? They have, Kelly, and it's great to be back on the show. I, th I think what happened in February is we saw Treasury rates drift back higher, and that pulled muni yields along for the ride. But it's creating, as you point out, a really nice entry point into the market. And I think the big thing that investors are so excited about and gets us excited is income is back in fixed income. And when you look at some of the yields that exist in the marketplace right now, just the full market muni index, which covers zero to 30 bonds, has a short duration of around six years. It's yielding around 3.6% with a double A rating. That's a taxable equivalent north of 6%. We think uh, with this pullback in rates right now, investors should really start looking at the muni bond market and, is, and get involved. Jamie, is the issue that people are afraid to pile in because they don't know when rates are going to stop rising and they go, OK, well, I could get in now, but then all of a sudden, if the 10-year, let's just say it, is it 4.5%, then I could have gotten a much better deal. I think that's on people's minds. Plus, look, last year was an incredibly tough year in the fixed income market. But wherever we are in the Fed cycle right now, I think everyone would agree we're moving into the later innings of the, the Fed tightening cycle. And so you're never going to time a bottom in the market. But when you look at the yields that are available, which are hundreds of basis points higher now than they were this time last year, I think investors should start averaging in and getting involved in the market and not try to overthink timing the absolute bottom. That is very, very difficult to do, even for bond professionals. Yeah. And the interesting thing, Dom, is state and local kind of runs by its own economy in sure. many ways. Right now, it's benefiting because this was the recipient of a lot of fiscal uh, largesse during the, the stimulus years. Thank you we'll for putting that more kindly. Yes. Um, I think if I were a muni investor, I'd want to make sure these are, I guess, Jamie, typically five-year investments, sometimes much longer. I would want to make sure that when that tide recedes, if the you know private sector tanks and then in three to five years, it's the public sector that's really feeling the pressure. Am I all of a sudden going to run into a problem you know, well, with the, the bonds? I'm well, I mean, for Jamie, I, I think from a portfolio or bond picker standpoint, it becomes much more of a difficult task to try to figure out where the relative strength will be in certain jurisdictions, locations, different types of projects, whether they be more tied to the taxing authority, whether they be more tied to the revenue generated by some of those those projects. But, but what it comes down to is whether or not, to Jamie's point, that, that there is a leg in option right now. And, and for a lot of folks out there who use things like ETFs and mutual funds to gain this kind of muni exposure, it could be as simple as putting in weekly or monthly deposits that then kind of leg in. There's no doubt that this is a more attractive level than it has been in a certain amount of time, but it's tough to go out there and just pick the bonds yourself right. as opposed to having somebody do it for you. And Jamie, is there almost too much competition right now? So for instance, we're talking about uh, treasuries. People can go, okay, I can go to this website. It's the federal government, you know, and I can get 5% on, we're almost at what, 5% on the two year today. So you can really get that pretty far out. Why would people then say, like to Dom's point, munis are a much harder asset class to move in and out of typically when they, is the problem too much competition, too many things offering high yields? Look, it's, a, it's, it's an exciting thing for fixed income investors, and treasuries are a very good investment right now. But when you tax adjust high quality munis, even in this environment, you end up with more basis points than you would 
owning a treasury. And people have to also remember that the historical default rate of munis is, is almost a negligible number in the higher rated categories. So it's a place you can be safe. It's a place you can get great tax adjusted returns and even do better than treasuries, which, as you point out, are, are throwing off some really, really attractive well, wait, yields right so now. Treasuries are exempt from what is it? State, State and local taxes. And local tax. But, but not munis, federal. And munis right. are exempt from all of them. Munis are exempt. Is yes. that right, Jamie? So That's correct. And if you're a New York resident, uh, Kelly, and someone bought a, a, a New York bond, as you point out, it would be exempt from federal, state, and if you lived in New York City, local taxes as well. Yeah. It's the reason why people are saying look at those markets and treasuries and munis and certain other parts versus, say, certificates of deposit with similar totally. similar yields because CDs and those, those interest payments are taxed at every level. Yeah, exactly. So. exactly. Triple tax exemption is a very powerful thing. Jamie, thanks so much for your time today. Jamie Islin and Dom Shu, our thanks as well. Sure. By the way, you can still pick up some pretty good yields in stocks these days as well, some paying even more than bonds. A new piece on Pro screened the largest 1,500 stocks for those with yields above the 10-year, solid to dividend coverage ratios, good balance sheets with a debt-to-equity ratio below 150%, and a one-year return that's better or about in line with the S&P. Three such examples that cropped up, Coterra yielding more than 9%, Kinder Morgan yielding more than 6%, and Dow Inc. almost 5%. The full list over at CNBC.com pro. Still ahead, another round of layoffs reportedly in the works at Meta. After Mark Zuckerberg de declared this will be a year of efficiency, how much more efficient will things get for all of big tech? We'll bring you the latest on that. Meta, by the way, up about a third of a percent right now, plus spirits, sportswear, and cybersecurity and earnings exchange. Are any of these beaten down names worth a buy ahead of results? We'll ask our trader. And as we head to break with the Dow near session lows, it's the banks dragging down the blue chips. JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, the worst performers. Regional banks are down as well. Uh, Merck, the only name in the green right now. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, and we have a lot of red today. The Dow's down 465 points. We're just a hair off session lows that have pretty much happened this hour. The S&P is below 4,000. Take a look at this. So many people watching these levels to see if we can consistently break out above them or not. Right now, we are below 4,000, while the Nasdaq is down three quarters of 1%. Now, also check out shares of Starwood. They're up 10% so far this year, but CEO Barry Stern, like warning on their earnings call last night about the worsening situation in commercial real estate. He said banks are already shutting down credit of smaller players, that any sales are pretty much distressed sales, and warning that the Fed has no idea, this is a quote, has no idea, it seems, what's going on in commercial real estate markets. Now, indeed, Fed Chair Powell was asked about it this morning, and he said the Fed is carefully monitoring smaller banks' exposure to commercial real estate. But you can see here, regional banks and those are larger than even some of the players he's talking about. They're struggling again today, down for the sixth day in the past seven, with Zion's down 5% and Truist, a couple of the worst performers. 
Now, on the flip side, the industrials are only fractionally lower today. And believe it or not, the XLI is just 2% off its all-time highs and up 24% since October. In fact, United Airlines is leading this group with a 45% rally this year, hitting a new 52-week high today and on pace for its best quarter since 2010. Transdime and Packer also hitting record new highs. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. In a major antitrust action, the Justice Department is going to court to stop JetBlue's $3.8 billion proposed purchase of Spirit Airlines because it would limit choices and drive up ticket prices. The impact of this merger will be particularly harmful for travelers who rely on what are known as ultra-low-cost carriers in order to fly. Those include working and middle-class Americans who travel for personal as opposed to business reasons and who must pay their own way. In a news release, the airlines say they are confident their proposed merger is pro-competitive and they will continue with their plan to create what they call a compelling national challenger to the nation's biggest carriers. After a massive search, two of the four Americans kidnapped after crossing into Mexico from Brownsville, Texas Friday have been found dead. The other two reportedly returned to the U.S. today in ambulances with a police escort. Mexican officials say one of the survivors was injured. And in Paris, police fought with some protesters opposed to the French government's plan to raise the country's retirement age. French unions are threatening rolling strikes that could, Kelly, go on for days. Yep. Back to you. Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. And welcome back, by the way. Matheson. Up next, crude prices, capital spending, and a controversy over conservation. No shortage of topics to cover with the CEO of ConocoPhillips. They're awaiting a big decision by the Biden administration. He'll join us next. And throughout March, we're celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is UPS CEO Carol Tomei. 100 years ago, UPS hired its first woman into our company. That trailblazer's name was Jessie Bell, and she worked as a clerk stenographer in Los Angeles. Today, Jessie's legacy is thriving, with women playing a critical role at every level of our workforce. And I'm honored to be the first woman to serve as our CEO. Today, one-third of our C-suite is comprised of women, and 46% of our board of directors is made up by women. But it doesn't stop there. Beyond our walls, we've provided resources and training to more than 100,000 women and small business owners, helping them expand their reach and achieve their goals. Shattering glass, that's our reason to celebrate. Welcome back to The Exchange. As we hit fresh session lows with the Dow down more than 500 points, the price of oil is also down more than 3% today after hawkish comments from Fed Chair Powell. Crude remains stubbornly below 80 a barrel this year, despite an expected rebound on China's reopening. Our next guest can perhaps shed some insight on why prices are weak, why prices at the pump are actually still pretty high, and what he expects out of the Biden administration on a major pending project. Let's bring in Brian Sullivan with an exclusive interview with ConocoPhillips CEO Ryan Lance. Brian? Yeah, Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, a lot to get to with interest rates, the economy, and oil demand. But first, uh, Ryan Lance, welcome. Thanks thank you, Brian. Thanks for uh, sitting down with us. We've got to talk about, I don't want to go into the weeds too much, or into the tundra, as it were. <laughs> 
20-some year project in far north Alaska near Prudhoe Bay. It's called Willows. It's been signed off on by the Bureau of Land Management. The indigenous tribes support it. The people of Alaska support it. You are awaiting a decision from the Biden administration on whether it will be approved or not and in what form. Tell our audience what you what you expect. I know what you hope, <laughs> and when we might know something. Well, it's uh, what what I expect, Brian. is a very good question. I, and I, the honest answer is I don't know. I think this could go un unbelievably. This could go either way, and it's all a political decision at this point. The administration is getting exactly what they've asked for, which is us companies like mine to lean in, make more capital investment, make more low GHG oil into the United States market. That's what the Willow Project is all about. Complete alignment amongst all our stakeholders. So it is, it's become a political decision trying to balance sort of the environment and, uh, and what, what's needed necessarily today to get us through this energy transition. And we hope to hear this week, uh, they're under a 30 day clock that started in the uh, first part of February. So we should have a decision sometime this week. And, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal. Is it, would you consider it material to shareholders of ConocoPhillips? Um, you know, I wouldn't call it ma material. There's lots of other things we can go do. It's important to the state of Alaska. It's important to the residents of Alaska. It is important to our company. We're one of the last people standing still exploring up in Alaska. That's what our job is to go do. We're finding great opportunities for the company up there. It's just a shame it gets wrapped around the axle in this permitting process. And it's, it's been not, four years that we've been permitting. And this. the Bureau of Land Management has signed off on it. The indigenous tribes there have supported it as well. Um, there is a I, I guess the worst outcome or political outcome could be the Biden administration approves it, but only in a limited way, what they call two pads, then it's not economic for you to, so it's gotta be at least three, what they call pads, yes. correct? Yeah, so three, three spots to drill the wells from yep. to develop the field, yes. And we've been very clear with the administration that a two pad approval is like, not approving the project. But then they so, can say they approved it and ConocoPhillips well, didn't do it. Certainly, that's, that's, what, that's what people worry about and that's why we've been very clear with the administration A two-pad approval is, a, uh, is a not approval of the project. They're, they're one and the same. We had Senator Dan Sullivan on with us, no relation by the way, yeah. from Alaska. <laughs> uh, he's fired up. Here's a little bit of what he had to say about the project. The leases, this isn't new, the leases on this were granted not granted, Conoco paid for them. A lot of people forget that. These are leases, Conoco paid over $100 million in the late 1990s, pays fees to the federal government. Since that time, has uh, invested about $600 million already. So how much are you guys, is anybody calculate all in? It's obviously been 20 some years. Roughly, how much do you think you guys have Well, you know, we've spent, in terms of the leases that Senator Sullivan was talking about, we went out and drilled the Discovery Well. We've had appraisal activities going on in the winter. So, yeah, we've spent up to about a half a billion dollars over the course of this period of time, you know, doing all the appraisal work, doing the front-end engineering work, doing all the preparatory, going through a four-year permit process. So it's not trivial, the amount of dollars that we've spent getting prepared for this. We've done it the right way. We've shrunk the development down to the smallest we can do. We're utilizing some of the newest technology to go do it. That's why we think the scientists have weighed in, the Bureau of Land Management, the Department of Interior have all weighed in, and there is, a, there is an acceptable, acceptable way to go forward. Let's talk about something. Kelly on the intro showed oil prices down. The market's down. Everything's yeah. kind of down today. Fed's raising rates. Do you have a macroeconomic view? And I ask you as a, as a, as a ConocoPhillips CEO, because will it kill oil demand? Tightening rates this aggressively. No, yeah, so I think it's a great question. I think uh, we think it's going to be really lumpy and bumpy for the first half of this year. I think it's weighing the, 
the risk of a recession on the demand side of the equation, which COVID coming out of China and the growth on the other side of the equation in our scene. We're pretty constructive in the second half of this year. We do think China's demand, mobility data is picking up in China as we speak today. We think it's probably going to be a pretty soft landing on the, the recession, certainly in the United States. It looks to be uh, Europe's out of their out of their funk. They survived what could have been a pretty cool. Well, they winter, survived, but they're going to thrive. But they still have a problem. Yes. They still have a problem. But we, we see sort of range-bound volatility in the first half, but growth and a more constructive market coming in the second half of this year. But that's going to impact inflation. That's going to have impact on other things that are going on. The Fed's going to have to take that into account. Can you explain to the people watching, because we hear this a lot, again, at very high levels, why aren't we producing more oil? We know that. We talked about that. And then gasoline prices. There is a huge difference between oil and gasoline. Exxon, or your competitors, is increasing refining capacity for the first time in a, in a very, very long time. Even if we produced more oil, let's say you decided a million more a day, could America today refine that into gasoline, or would we just have to export it anyway? Yeah, I think that there's, there's certainly a balance in the market today. We export a, a, num, a bunch of product coming out of our refining system today. But the fact of the matter is you're right. We've lost a couple million barrels a day of refining capacity in the U.S. Some of that's going to build renewable fuels. Some of that is shut down permanently in the United States. So we're fortunate to still have a net excess of gasoline and, and diesel that we can use here in the United States. But that problem is getting exacerbated as we go forward over the next, next decade and beyond. Well, Ryan Lance, Chairman and CEO of ConocoPhillips, when, it won't be if, when you get a decision about Willow up in Alaska, let us know. We will. It's, it's, uh, it's a real test to see what, how the White House is going to react. Yeah. Brian, thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Kelly. Great chat. Timely interview. Brian, they, Brian and Ryan, thank you both. And by the way, big day tomorrow, the premiere of CNBC's new show, Last Call with Brian Sullivan, weekday 7 p.m. Eastern. It begins tomorrow night. Don't miss it. Set your DVRs. You know what to do. Still ahead, Meta leading into its year of efficiency. The company reportedly set to announce a fresh round of layoffs. The second round of cuts in four months. The stock trying to hold some gains in today's tough session. We've got the details next. And let's look at the sectors as we go to break with the Dow down 519 right now. Everybody's in the red. Uh, energy, by the way, is one of it's about middle of the pack, down 1.6%. Financials are the worst. We highlighted the regional bank issues earlier, but JP, Goldman, worse than the Dow. Financials down 2.5%. Discretionary with a lot of big tech in there, down less than 1%. The NASDAQ is the best of the averages right now, down only 1%. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. MetaShares trying to stay in the green uh, amid today's sell-off. They're a tenth of a point away from turning negative. Now, it comes as Bloomberg reports the company could announce thousands more layoffs as soon as this week. It's all part of a major cost-cutting plan that was announced last November. Investors cheering it with the stock doubling off those recent lows. But does it also mean that Facebook and Instagram, Meta's two big properties, are giving up their hopes of returning to double-digit revenue growth? For more, let's get to Deirdre Bosa and today's edition of Tech Check. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Kelly, when it comes to layoffs, measure twice, cut once. That is typically a good or at least a desired philosophy, but that is proving difficult in the current macro environment. Meta, which has already cut 13 percent of its workforce, by the way, as Kelly said, is reportedly planning another round that could affect thousands of workers. Now, it shouldn't come as a huge surprise. Zuckerberg has dropped Metaverse mentions for efficiency mentions and cuts to non-core projects and middle management. He also never said that he was done, rather that this was the beginning. Here he is on February 1st to analysts. I want to discuss my management theme for 2023, uh, which is the year of efficiency. 
we closed last year with some difficult layoffs and, and restructuring some teams. And when we did this, I said clearly that this was the beginning of our focus on efficiency and not the end. That has also helped to revive Meta's share price. Look at that chart up 61% since the November layoff. Still fresh layoffs if they do come to fruition. They underline the very difficult moment that big tech finds itself currently. Of course, it is not just Meta, which went on a hiring spree during the pandemic. There was Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft as well. Those are the numbers Amazon hired. It doubled its workforce over that time. It also begs the question, are the others done with their layoffs? Already more workforce slimming, we'll call it, is happening quietly. The Seattle Times reports that Microsoft has cut another nearly 700 jobs, bringing its total layoffs to nearly 2,200 since January. Beyond big tech, the layoff announcements, they continue to roll in. Kelly Atlassian this morning announcing in a blog post that it's cut 5% of its workforce, but it is making this distinction here that it's hiring in other growthier areas. So as you can see, companies have a tricky line to walk. They've got to please investors but not scare their workforce. I think it's probably safe to say, though, that Meta's workforce could be on edge. Oh, sure. I mean, we all think of Amazon as the poster child for pandemic expansion, but those graphics you just showed indicate that both Amazon and Meta basically doubled their workforce. Now, is that just because more people were using Instagram and Facebook, you know, when COVID hit? If they overexpanded, there it is, the workforce up 94 percent, then we should expect if they have to rationalize, shouldn't we expect a lot more layoffs? Right. And well, I'm glad that you make this distinction because Meta and Amazon, very different companies, right? A lot of the Amazon's hiring happened at its factory in the warehouses because we know that there was this huge boom in e-commerce. They had to get those goods to customers during the pandemic. Um, And Amazon has only cut about 6% of its workforce versus Meta's 13%. So maybe that works out. Although you look at a Google, right, Kelly, which has cut by very small percentage in terms of its workforce. So it could have more to do. Investors have certainly called for it. And you hear some around the edges at its other bets projects like Waymo and Verily. Um, But I think what this week tells us is that they may not be done. And why not? I mean, look at the stock price. I know Mike Santoli earlier today was saying that um, Meta has a higher multiple than Google. And you haven't seen that in years. And Hmm. a lot of that is largely because of that efficiency cost cutting that Zuckerberg's been on. All right. A founder controlled company, but he knows how to listen to what the investors want. Deirdre, thank you very much. Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, inflation, IT spend, the perils of celebrity partnerships. We've got CrowdStrike, Brown Foreman, and Adidas all on deck to report. Uh, The stocks are lower today, but we've got a Dow down 556. So good luck finding some green. We'll dig into them next. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on three names about to report their results. And we'll start today with CrowdStrike. They're after the bell, and their last quarter was a doozy. The shares dropped 14% after the report, which gave weaker-than-expected revenue guidance, and they haven't climbed back to that nearly 150 a share level ever since. Our trader today is Gina Sanchez. She's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Uh, tough tape today, Gina. Tough. I don't know if that makes it easier if you're reporting, um, but what would you do with CrowdStrike? 
CrowdStrike is a tough one. You know, this is a company that is still growing, even though they had a hit. Um, and expectations are that they will continue to grow their revenues. But it's a company that's not yet making profits. And the market has not been kind to unprofitable companies. And even though this segment is unquestionably poised for continued growth and the platform relationships that they signed with um, Amazon Web Services um, and with the hardware provider Dell, I mean, these are great ways to sell their product. And they will eventually become profitable. But in the meantime, you know, they are just not hitting the mark. And I don't think that the market is going to be very kind to them in the, as we go through this next round of, of expected and, quite frankly, unexpected continuation of, of rate hikes. Yeah. So you're steering clear of it for now. Um, you know, the P.E. still 67. So it's not exactly a bargain. Uh, we'll see if that improves. In the meantime, we've got Brown Foreman, you know, obviously different story, but kind of, you know, similar. I mean, the, the shares spiked during the pandemic, but they're now back to roughly where they were pre-COVID. So what's the next catalyst for the stock here? And they've got supply chain and they've got inflation and they've got, you know, the changing consumer and all of this to worry about. Yeah, I mean, they're getting hit on the inflation side and you're seeing it in their margins. But this is a company that actually had higher profit margins or higher operating margins than their uh, peers. And so even though their margins are falling, they're still actually pretty healthy. They're at 30 percent. So that's not bad. Um, the, the bigger challenge that you have is that this has been a very high quality stock, a defensive stock. When people get uh, when when you get a recession, when you get a pandemic, people drink. Um, we saw that during the pandemic and we would expect it to go on. But it is highly priced that quality is already priced into the stock. I mean, this is a stock that we own at Lido Advisors because we do think it is a high quality stock. And mm. if you think that if you believe Powell that he's just going to keep going until eventually everybody loses their jobs, well, then you would you would be willing to pay for that quality. And so that's really what investors have to weigh is how much is quality worth right now. All right. Let's turn to this sort of Adidas and Nike story. Adidas reports before the bell tomorrow. They've got the celebrity collaborations to worry about. Everyone wants to know what they're going to do with all that Yeezy inventory now, product innovations. They've got a new CEO. But if you go back to the recent October lows, both of these stocks have actually seen a pretty nice pop. Nike's up about uh, 50 percent during this time. Adidas, too, Adidas, though, is still 50 percent off the peak 21 levels, while Nike only about 30 percent below those highs. So what what would you do with these kinds of stocks in this uh, this climate? Look, this is a challenge. First and foremost, you have to remember that this is this is the kind of apparel and the kind of uh, buy that is not necessary. Right. And you have, you know, add to that the fact that they're going to lose a billion dollars of projected revenue um, off of the uh, off of, you know, off of dropping Kanye. Um, and that that's going to hurt them about a half a billion dollars worth of profitability. That's not a great situation to be going into potentially a worse recession than we were expecting. I think most investors were expecting a very short, shallow recession. Mm. Um, Powell's comments today don't. <laughs> Don't support that. That's really um, interesting. So can you I, can you just highlight that? Because I was going to ask you about the broad markets, Gina. I mean, is that what you think the main takeaway is from this morning? I do think that. I mean, what what Powell is saying is um, that that he is going to keep uh, raising rates until he sees um, inflation back off. And the problem that we see with that is that what's driving that inflation is a shortage of human beings, of people, right. of, of, job, of people who can work the jobs. And so if, in fact, he does that, he could plunge us into a pretty significant recession. And it's just currently not priced for that. Most investors are pricing for a short, shallow recession. Mm -hmm. um, a Fed-induced recession could be 
very painful. Well, that's so interesting. That's kind of actually, to me, the, the headline of the whole show. Uh, we'll leave it there. Gina, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Gina Sanchez, that does it for the exchange. But as she mentioned, with stocks near session lows, we're going to stay all over this market sell-off. Dow's down 556. And coming up in Power Lunch, also some dramatic moves here. Weight Watchers getting into the anti-obesity drug market. Dr. Scott Gottlieb joins us to weigh in. Kind of a controversial story. Tyler's getting ready. He's back. So happy. And I will join him on the other side of this quick way. I'm happy. Hopefully he's happy. See you in a moment. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 